Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Luke chapter 15. We've been uh, doing a series on prayer. And uh, for whatever reason, with this topic for this morning, just on my notes preparing for this series, I had about five different passages uh, that I was trying to narrow down which one that I was preaching on. And I just, I finally narrowed it down to two, and one of them wasn't on my original five. So uh, we're going to do something I don't normally do, is we're going to look at two passages this morning. Uh, We're going to look at uh, Luke 15 and Matthew 13. So we'll be in Luke 15 first. Uh, We're talking about praying for the lost. And I want to stop for a moment and just kind of give a little bit of an introduction to this, because I recognize that my title is offensive. And I don't mean for it to be, so let me just address this. Um, Our society wants to separate us into groups or tribes or opposing sides of every argument. And we don't want to get drug into that. Uh, I'm using the word lost here because in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus uses that phrase. He talks about the 99 and the one that is lost. But his point in the sermon, in this parable, is that the 99 are not greater than the one. It's not that we are here and we are good and that other group over there. In fact, Jesus is addressing people who think they're a part of the 99 and he is insinuating that they may not be. So we're not talking about one group versus another group. In fact, I would say this. Scripture teaches that we are all lost and that God loves us so much that he pursues us as in this parable and he comes and gets us and rescues us. So we're talking about prayer specifically and we are looking at different things that we pray for. We've been using this definition of prayer Prayer is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God, Timothy Keller. We talked about how there's three types of prayer. There's times that we're just asking God. It's kind of this quick thing, maybe as we go throughout the day. There are things that we are seeking. Those are things that maybe uh, cause us to rearrange our priorities a little bit, to really give time to pray for that thing. And then there is knocking. There are those things that we uh, have an obstacle to, in front of us that we need to just keep praying harder. And I would say those that don't know Christ and we are concerned for, these are are things that we are knocking on. We asked last week in looking at the prodigal, should we even be praying for this type of thing? And we said that the story of the Bible is one big rescue plan, that saving the lost is at the heart of God. The Bible models it for us over and over and over again. When we talked about praying for the prodigals, we said that God shows extravagant grace, God throws extravagant parties, and God welcomes sinners extravagantly. So here we are looking at those that maybe don't have any religious background. They're not leaving the church and going out. They're not the prodigal. There are those that maybe have no knowledge of God or no interest in God, and I would say we're still to pray for them. We are all lost. And God pursues us. So, with that in mind, Luke chapter 15. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, this verse is under a little bit of scrutiny in Scripture. Not that that's what it says, but commentators say different things. Some people would say, well, of course, what, what shepherd wouldn't go after the lost sheep? That's what the shepherd does. But then other people note, hey, hold on a second. He's got 99. He lost one. You don't leave the 99 and risk your large investment to go get one small person. You go, oh man, I lost one, 1%. Write it off on my taxes, move on. Okay, and so it depends what logic you're coming from here, but it's an interesting verse. It says in verse five, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus is telling this parable to address an issue. And the issue is the righteous people, okay, the religious leaders, are concerned that Jesus is spending time with people that are unseemly, not part of the in-group, not considered righteous. And so they're questioning his integrity. And so Jesus tells this parable, and it's interesting to me, he says at the end, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Is there anybody that needs no repentance? So in this parable, we see the shepherd's compassion for the lost. Who are the lost in this parable? Well, we have the context of what was happening in the beginning. So he mentions that they're hanging out with sinners. Talk about labeling, right? There was a group of people who the righteous people then just referred to as sinners, it was a catch-all for all those people who were not living the way that the, the religious leaders thought they should live. When Paul talks about sinners, he talks about it in a different way. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he puts everybody in that category. All, meaning all. Every people, every people group, every individual person, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Paul goes on to say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So who are the lost? They're sinners. That's who we're talking about, and we don't mean that to be offensive. We just mean it to say, look, we recognize that we're all sinners. I would go a step further and say the lost are the outcasts. He talks about the sinners 
and tax collectors as a group of people who are on the outside looking in. There are people that don't fit in to the normal religious circles of the day. They look different. They hang out in different places. They smell different. You might think I'm exaggerating a little bit. I was talking with Pastor James over at Sunrise, and they've got the, um, the, the cold weather uh, shelter over there. And he says, when we do that, you know, the church has a little bit of stench left over after folks leave. And on Sunday morning, some of my people, some of the 99, complain a little bit. And so James says, I just tell them they need to uh, disciple their noses. <laughs> right? Sometimes we have to do that. So they're on the outside looking in. They're the group that are perishing. I want to show you something in this text. He says um, in verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one? There's that word that we're looking at. That word lost is the same Greek word in John 3.16. When Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish. It's the same Greek word, lost and perish. Um, The word means to lose destroy, or perish. Jesus is picturing this lost sheep maybe a little bit more serious than you or I. Jesus is saying there is a group of people that are not a part of your circles that are lost, that are headed for destruction, who are perishing. So the the shepherd has compassion. Jesus has compassion for them. Second, the shepherd is committed to the lost. And it's a costly commitment. Now, however you want to look at this, he leaves the 99 and he goes looking for the one. There's a cost involved in that. In time, in effort, in risk towards the 99. Now, I was not good at math in school, um, but there was two things that I did well in in math, two sections. One was geometry. I don't know if I just did better with the spatial recognition or what it was or the fact that I had the varsity uh, uh, football coach as my teacher and some of his players were in my class, and so the standard might have been lowered a little bit. I don't know, but I did well in geometry, And I did well in those assignments where we had to mark which is greater than. I liked those. And so in this text, we would say the 99 is greater than the one. But in Jesus' math, the 99 is not greater than the one. It's equal to the one. And I think you and I need to see that. Because in our time 
and resources as a church, as individuals, which do we invest in more? The 99 or the one? It's costly. Second, it's courageous. The idea of the shepherd going out and looking for the sheep, is, it's a courageous act. The idea that Jesus became man and dwelt among us in his creation, was rejected by his creation, and died on the cross for our sin is courageous. The gospel is an incredible rescue story of a God that loved us so much and acts courageously to save us. Third, it's complete. It's a beautiful story. The shepherd going out and finding the sheep puts it on his shoulders. He carries it back. I had a friend uh, who was a farmer, and uh, he told me a story one time. He was out hiking, and uh, in McCall, where we lived, they had opened up part of the federal land uh, for people to bring sheep through. And uh, I, you would be out hiking some days, and you would think, oh, man, there's a lot of deer out here. And then a, a hunt, good hunter would say, those aren't deer dropping. And there would just be just these sheep that would just come through this area. And he said one time he was on a hike, and he was going up, hiking up to this waterfall, and he found one sheep that had been left behind. And being a Christian, he just he instantly like went to the story, right, in his mind. And so he says, I got I to gotta rescue the sheep. And so he said, Dave, I put that sheep up on my shoulders. And he said, they're heavier than you think. And he, was, and he began to tear up, and he tried to hike out with this sheep on his shoulders, and he came to a point where he just couldn't physically do it anymore. It's a courageous act when you give of your time and your energy and your effort to risk to save something else, somebody else. That's the story of the Bible. Now, some people ask the question, I, I was reading, and, and so many different stories with this parable, and so you never know which ones are you know, made up for a preacher to have a really good point or what, and I try to be careful, but one story was a preacher saying, and he was emphasizing, I don't know why Jesus would leave the 99 to get the one, and he said one day he was preaching, and this gal came up and said, I know why. He said, really? He said, well, she said, I have sheep. He said, they're very relational creatures. And one is gone, the group itself becomes disturbed and bothered by it. And the one is definitely stressed out. And so to bring harmony, the shepherd has to bring them all back to or try as much as he can to bring them all back together. And I said, now that's, that's great. And I just, I thought about us as believers. Are we bothered by, disturbed by, the fact that somebody might be missing, not included in the group. So we look at the shepherd's compassion. We look at the shepherd's commitment to the lost. And third, the shepherd's successful mission. The shepherd has a successful mission at saving this lost sheep. The sheep gets rescued. That's the point. The sheep gets found. It's not lost anymore. We don't have to label it that way. The sheep gets found. 
it's kind of interesting to me. I just, I don't think in the minds of a shepherd. And so, I don't know. I just assumed when the shepherd finds the sheep, he puts a little leash around its neck and says, let's go. But he doesn't do that. Picks it up and puts it on its shoulders. The sheep finds rest. The shepherd says, man, you've, you've been out here for a while. I don't know how you got out of here, but you're tired. You've walked far enough. Let me carry you. I just want to stop for a moment and say this. There's people who are far away from the Lord. And when you look at their lives, it looks like chaos and sin and outcast and perishing and whatever you want to say. But according to Jesus, what they need is rest. We used to learn all these great, you know, evangelical, like, uh, ways to witness to people. And, you know, the, the one, and some of you had learned this, right? If you died today, you know, would you go to heaven? Maybe the one that we should do is, hey, you look like you need a vacation. Look like you need some rest. Right? And then third, the friends rejoice. The shepherd rejoices. He says, call my friends together, and they rejoice. Now, step back from the parable a little bit. Jesus has some religious people who see themselves on the inside. And they say, why are you spending time with those people? And Jesus says, those people were a part of the flock. I don't think he's saying this in the sense of the prodigal. I think he's saying this in the sense of all things were created through him and by him and for him. It's all his. And he sees each one as precious and loved and part of his creation. And Jesus looks those religious leaders in the eye and he says, if you can't see that these are God's children and that God's love them, I think he is questioning whether they are part of God's children. In fact, he goes on and we looked at the prodigal son is the end of these uh, parables and it's about two sons who are lost the righteous one and the prodigal one, and who are the bit older brothers in the story? It's the religious leaders. This is all coming down to pointing at them. So we stop and ask ourselves, how concerned, how broken up, how much effort do we spend thinking about those who may be apart from Christ? Now, if you have your Bibles, turn over to um, the second passage in Matthew chapter 13. This is the passage that kind of crept up on me a little bit. 
It's one that we're very, many of us are very familiar with. If you're not, I'm going to read it here and we'll listen. Matthew chapter 13, it's the parable of the sower. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow and he sowed some seeds. He sowed and some seeds fell among the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And uh, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, the disciples ask some questions about why he's speaking in parables, and so Jesus explains this parable in verse 18. So let's pick it up there. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but, he, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, it is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and it yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So some lessons from the farmer. God has a plan for spreading the gospel. This is the book of Matthew, and so Matthew ends with the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded. And so there is a plan, and the plan is that God's people, the church, will go make disciples. He has a plan for spreading the gospel. Jesus wants the seed to be sown. Okay, now I don't use that term. I don't know that I've ever sown a seed. Okay, but it's the idea of throwing out the seed into the soil. Okay, we're we're putting it out there so that it will grow. Now, this farmer in the story is not a very good farmer. Okay, Um, seed is investment product. You don't sow seed on the path, okay? You know it's not going to grow there. You don't sow seed in rocky soil. You know it's not going to grow there. You don't don't throw it next to the thorn bushes. It's not going to grow there. But God is generous with the sowing of the seed. He has a plan. 
He wants the gospel out there. He wants it spread generously. Second, God's plan has supernatural potential. Now again, I'm not a farmer, but from what I have studied, sowing seed that produces a hundredfold or 60 is out of bounds. That is supernatural. Okay? Even 30 is pretty generous in this. It's an amazing thing when the gospel is really sown in our hearts. The goal, the goal is not just that you would get to heaven. It's a wonderful thing. But the goal of the gospel getting into our hearts is that we would become like him. Paul says we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. The goal for you and I is to become more and more and more like Jesus. Why is that important? What does that have to do with praying for the lost? Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus left the 99 to find the one. If we are going to become like him, we will begin, second, to behave like him. We become like him, we behave like him, and when we begin to behave like Jesus, when we begin to think like Jesus, over time we should be broken by the same things that break his heart. The religious people are like, what are you doing? Spending time with those sinners. Tax collectors. And Jesus reveals that he cares about them. When we see things, does it break our heart in the same way that it breaks God's heart? In a book I was reading recently, the author was sharing that his brother had asked a question. Said, have you in the last 10 years grown spiritually? Now let me just throw this out to you for a second. And I, I, want, I want to wrestle through it with you. In the last 10 years, have you grown spiritually? Not have you learned more. Not do you have more knowledge. But in the last 10 years, can you honestly say that you are behaving more like Jesus. I know you've heard a lot of sermons. Some of you have read through parts of Scripture, all of it here recently as a church. But are we allowing it to change us? Because listen, if it's not changing us, then something's wrong with the soil. And in the parable that becomes very dangerous. Are you becoming more like, behaving more like, broken by the things of Jesus? Look, it's not about checking your box that you came to church. 
It's not about checking the box that you gave the money. It's not about the small group. It's not about the thing that you did or the broken thing that you fixed or whatever you cleaned up. Good. That's just what it takes to keep a thing going here. Are you becoming more like Jesus? And I think that should impact our prayers. Now, God's plan for sowing the seed has some opposition. And the opposition, Jesus kind of puts out here for us. The hard soil is a hard heart. And it's so hard that the soil doesn't begin to take root. And so the evil one comes and takes it away. Now, I, I like to see little birds eating seed on the, on the path. That's cute. So I picture these as crows. Okay? I'm sorry. I don't see any redeeming quality in crows. And so the hard soil, the seed goes out there, it's just taken right away by the crows. Little scavengers. I, my wife is terrified of crows. Don't tell her I told you. And a friend of hers one time, they got one of those stuffed crows at like, I don't know what it was, like at one of the craft stores. I don't know why people are buying these things. And they put it in our yard on a Sunday morning. My wife walks out. We were newly married. She's like, Dave, come here. Come here. And this crow was out there and she was out there in the yard. She says, I'm exaggerating. but She's like, go away. Go away. It wasn't moving, so it did start freaking me out. It looked really real. So I found something, I threw it at it, and it just I hit it right in the chest, and it just went, Eep. So crows, Satan. Just, just know that. But the problem here, we have this soil issue that our heart is not willing to receive good news. Why is that? I mean, there's all sorts of things that can make somebody kind of develop a hard heart. Second, there's the, the rocky soil. There's, there's no room for growth. This, this group accepts something, they receive it with joy, but there's nowhere because the soil is so rocky, there's so many things, the roots don't get down there, and then it says that the sun, which is here just kind of, trials and difficulties just withers the plant. There's the thorny soil, not the soil, but the uh, uh, plants around it, and that's life's worries. What a beautiful picture. Doesn't that, doesn't that just picture life's worries, just kind of thorns and thistles? And then there's the good soil, and that produces fruit. Now, what is fruit? And we could do a whole other sermon on that. I grew up in church, and man, every time I heard fruit, it's like, man, I better lead somebody to the Lord, or I'm not bearing any fruit, and I may not be a Christian. Look, fruit is wider than that. It's becoming like Christ. It's behaving like Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a heart for the lost. It's reaching out. It's, it's, the fruit is a wide range of things here. It's being more and more in love with Jesus. So, with that in mind, how do we pray for the lost? Um, let me give you some practical things here, five ways that we can pray for the lost. 
Now, first, I think we need to pray for people by name. Um, I, I don't think what we're looking here for is just a general God save the lost prayer. God, I think we're looking for something more specific than that. Now, name can be a personal name, somebody that you've identified that you are praying for. Um, I, I shared last week that in my prayer journal, I have different things, and I have uh, written off to the side, I think I'm up uh, six or seven people that I'm praying for on a daily basis for their salvation. There are people in the community and people in my family. And I, I'm excited that over the years, I've been able to move people off that list because God has answered that prayer. That's, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But if I don't have that list, then I forget to pray for them. And if I don't pray for them, and I don't recognize when God has worked in their life. So I list them by name. Now, sometimes we might, this might just be neighbors. I don't quite know their name, but praying for the neighbors over there, or I'm praying for my neighbors at work, cubicles or whatever that is, or uh, school or play or whatever it is where I shop. And so sometimes I don't quite know their name, but I'm getting to know their name and I begin to pray for them. Maybe you could pray for people groups. Now, here's something that's a little bit more general, but I think you can make it specific by praying for a certain people group. It was interesting to me in our scripture reading this week that Abraham, in a sense, prays for Sodom, doesn't he? Right? So God tells me, he says, Abraham's a righteous man. God's having a conversation with these angels, it seems like, or with himself and the Trinity. And he says, well, we should probably tell Abraham what I'm about to do. And so he tells Abraham, and Abraham says, oh, God, I, you know, I, don't, I don't mean to push, but if there were this many righteous people, would you save them? Yes. How well, I don't mean to keep going here, but what if there's this many? Yeah, I wouldn't destroy so. What if there was this many? And you kind of are sitting there, even if you're reading it, you're like, he's talking to God. It gets down to like 20 people. I want to ask you, be honest. Not, don't, don't answer out loud here. <laughs> but if you were next door to Sodom, would you be praying for it? Maybe you'd be praying that God would destroy it. Saying, oh boy, finally, getting around to that. That's not even Abraham's heart. Abraham cares for the people of Sodom. He's praying for them. He's, he's mediating for them. He's pleading, God, how about this many? How about this many? So we can pray for people by people groups. Second, and the reason why I went through the parable of the sower and what really hit me is maybe we should be praying specifically for a change of heart. Right? Maybe we can look at people that we know and we care for and we can pray that God would soften their heart. You know, sometimes when I have a conversation with somebody and, and I'm talking about the Lord and, you know, it doesn't, you know, doesn't end in this glorious you know, uh, testimony of the person I was sitting next to on the plane getting saved. I hate it when pastors share that story because every time I fly, I'm like, oh no, here I am. Pastors love that story. I guess they fly a lot and lead a lot of people to Christ. Never happened to me. Um, but you know what I think of sometimes is sometimes those conversations break up the soil a little bit. Sometimes people have that conversation and they go, oh, that's not what I thought, or you're not what I thought. You're not what I expected. 
I love it when people say, sorry, you're going to be offended by this, but I am excited about this. When people say, you're a pastor? Kind of, question mark? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't have expected that. It's not because I'm doing anything radically bad. It's just trying to be a normal person. I've met a lot of abnormal pastors or religious people. And so sometimes we can just, in the conversations, begin to break up that soil, break up those rocks, take away a question, talk to them about the thorns in their life, how we can help them with that. And so maybe you need to begin to pray for people that they would have a change of heart. And maybe you see that they are in love with the riches of this world or that they have a really hard heart. And you can pray specifically for that. Another way we pray for the lost, Jesus tells us to pray for workers. Now, those are people who have dedicated more time and energy and resources to reaching the lost. Now, we pray for workers all the time around here, for children's ministry, for youth ministry, uh, for every ministry, and we pray that God would bring people along to work alongside and share Christ with children and share Christ with youth. We, it's a desperate need, and you can pray along with that. But even beyond that, um, we want to pray for people to go off into the mission field. And that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, to send somebody out. It's becoming uh, more and more costly. And so we need people to be supporters of those people going out and pray for them. And so uh, I think this is something that we can give more time to. If we go back to our ask, seek, knock, um, this is something that maybe we need to begin to change our priorities around a little bit, that we pray more for workers. Um, next, we, we pray for opportunities. Um, we pray for opportunities. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Are you praying that God would give opportunity for you to shine a light in a way that people will see your life? Now, let me just say this. Uh, most of us pray, help me not be seen. I, I, don't, I don't want to be seen. Um, you know, it's actually... Kind of funny, I'm a pastor, I preach in front of people all the time, but if you put me in a group of people I don't know, I can become a little bit of a wallflower sometimes. Um, especially if I don't know anybody in the room. I'd much rather just talk with a few individuals deeper, it's just the way I am. Um, but most of us kind of don't want to be seen. Jesus says, let your light shine. Let it shine. Frank, don't start singing. I know, I know you're thinking about it. I'm not going to do that today. Let your light shine. Don't hide it. Next, we, we need to pray for boldness. Um, we're scared. We're becoming increasingly scared in our society. 
What happens when I do speak of Jesus Christ? And we begin to play the game. If I say this, is this going to happen? What is this person going to think? Am I going to... All these sort of things. And, and there's, I mean, it's family-wise, what, you know, what happens? Am I going to be thrown out of the family or work or whatever it is? And what we need to pray for is the boldness to say what God wants us to say. And the faith, listen, and the faith to believe that he's going to protect us as we do it. So here's some application and action for this morning. Um, let's start. If we're struggling with this, and some of you are and some of you aren't, we're just in different places in our, in our journey with Jesus, but if, if you're struggling with the idea of praying, with other, praying for other people, or if you're willing to pray but you're not really willing to engage, maybe we just need to pray that God would give us a greater burden to plead for others. God, increase my burden. Help me to think like you think. Help me to see people the way you see people. If we're honest, sometimes the world has just created this environment where we begin to hate other people. Um, I came across a story this week, and I keep wrestling with whether I'm going to share it, and I'm going to share it. Um... I can't pronounce the man's name correctly. I believe it's Laris. Um, his wife, Helene, uh, was killed by terrorists in the theater um, shooting in Paris or bombing, along with 88 other people. Two days after the attack, in an open letter to his wife's killers, he wrote this. On Friday night, you stole the life of an exceptional being, the love of my life, the mother of my son, but you will not have my hate. I don't know who you are, and I don't want to know. You are dead souls. If that God for whom you blindly kill made us in his image, every bullet in my wife's body will have been a wound in his heart. So no, I will not give you the satisfaction of hating you. That's what you want. But to respond to your hate with anger would be to yield to the same ignorance that made you what you are. You want me to be scared, to see my fellow citizens through suspicious eyes, to sacrifice my freedom for security. You have failed. I will not change. He goes on to say, there are only two of us, my son and myself, but we are stronger than all the armies of the world. Anyway, I don't have any more time to waste on you, as I must go see Melville, who is waking from his nap. He is only 17 months old. He will eat his snack as he does every day. Then he will play as we do every day. In all his life, this little boy will defy you by being happy and free, because you will not have his hate either. Sometimes I think we fall into the same hate the world does. The Bible says the world will hate you. That should be no surprise. What should surprise and shock us and be appalling in our midst is if we show any hate the other direction. Because we are filled with the love of God 
The world wants you to hate them. But God wants you to love them. So pray that you would have a greater burden for the lost. Second, pray that you would develop a relationship with them. Ooh, that becomes a little more intense. In Romans chapter 10, Paul wrote, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? Now, don't think of preaching just as this. Think of preaching as sitting with somebody and sharing Christ with them. How will anybody ever hear unless you develop a relationship with them, pray for them, and share with them? And then finally, look for those, uh, pray for those opportunities and look for them. One way that I do that in my prayer time is I pray for divine opportunities. God, bring about some divine opportunities. Now, when I pray that, then I need to be aware that that flat tire, that hang up in line, that person who calls me when I'm trying to get something done may be a divine appointment. Divine appointments never look like I want them to look. That's why they're divine. And so I need to recognize, wait a second, this might be one of those divine appointments. Part of our vision as a church is to love people. And some of the ways that we have done that, loving people and making disciple, is by showing hospitality. Who are some people that you could just spend some time with and invite them into your home or go have dinner with? Uh, sometimes it means being involved in peacemaking and helping people resolve things. And sometimes it means serving. Um, I was really uh, convicted one day. Um, um, lived in a different place where it snowed quite a bit. And if you ever live in a place where it snows quite a bit, shoveling snow becomes old after a while. It looks really nice in the movies. It's not. And the worst part of shoveling snow is when the uh, snow plow comes by because they build a big berm right in front of your driveway that is hard rock ice. And one time, it was Christmas Eve, and I had just gone. Uh, I came in the house. I was doing a bunch of things and wasn't paying attention. And the snowplow came by, and I was leaving in my Sunday best to go do the Christmas Eve service, and there was the berm. And I wasn't being very spiritual at that point in time. <laughs> wasn't preparing my heart for worship. And my neighbor, who was a drunk, he was the town drunk. Everybody knew it. His life was in shambles. Wife had left him years ago. His house was in shambles. You know, it was one of those houses you just go, oh man, I wish he would move that car. And he saw me shoveling. And he came over with his snowblower, which the pastor couldn't afford. He got rid of that enough for me to get out. And I thought, he is serving me more than I am serving him. Right? We... We need to recognize that there are people that we need to invest time in, even if we're not going to get anything back in return. Pray for a greater burden. Pray that you would develop a relationship with them. And then look for opportunities to serve them, to be with them, to care for them.
Let's, as a church, do a better job caring for and praying for those who are part of God's creation who need to be brought home. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to worship. Thank you for your word. Um, God, we pray that you would take the words that we have heard this morning, that you would plant them in our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be ready to receive them. We pray that as a church, we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers as well. That we might all consider how we can better care for, pray for, and seek out the lost. God, we pray for a revival in our community, in our church, in our, in our nation. We pray that we would see people coming to Christ. And Lord, we, would, we pray until you come back that we would believe that you are capable and desire to bring about these revivals. Help us to be ready for it. Help us to be workers. God, bring people, even from our church here today, that you would begin to work in their heart, that they might be sent out to be missionaries, that they might step into ministry roles. They might become leaders in your church as you work in their heart. Lord, we pray that this would be true. In Jesus' name, amen.